The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. This is Jim Shapiro filling in for Vena Jones-Cox. Vena is... Doing a uh, wholesale academy, uh, I think down in Knoxville. Is that? I thought it was Nashville. Nashville, but... Nashville, not Knoxville, Nashville, Nashville. I can never quite say it the way you're supposed to. Uh, so I'm filling in today, and I'm pleased to be here. I've got a, a great guest. Actually, he's the same guest I had the last time I sat in on the show, but a totally different topic. Uh, my guest today is Bob Dressman with uh, HeritageRent.com. Uh, Bob has been a full-time investor since 1991, he's been a principal in over a thousand real estate transactions with single-family, multifamily, commercial, uh, defaulted in performing notes, and he's done hard money lending. So he brings a lot of experience. Uh, he's currently a, a principal in Restructure Opportunity Fund LLC, which is an enterprise he's doing together with Vina uh, and HeritageRent.com. Uh, he's a summa cum Laude graduate of Miami University with a degree in economics, and he was recently featured in the uh, Cincinnati Business Courier in an article about investors using private financing, private funding to acquire real estate. Welcome, Bob. Good afternoon, Jim. Nice to have you. Uh, this time we should be able to yeah have a little more. It. Our last guest uh, was another fellow. I won't bring up names and topics, but he was hard person to work with because he kind of talked. Non-stop. We barely got a word in. I had to interrupt him a couple times. So uh, today, Bob, will have a, we'll have a lot more time to hear his uh, his thoughts on our topic today. Our topic today, uh, Bob, I understand you've been doing a program where you're buying kind of handyman special type properties and selling them almost as is with seller financing to homeowners who will take them as is, fix them up, and live in them. Uh, some of these have, you know, they're being sold on land contracts. We'll talk about all this in a minute, but mm -hmm. just kind of lay it out. You're selling them on land contract, which is a form of seller financing. And you are, in some cases, giving them long term, right? They don't ever have to go to the bank. You'll give them a 10 or 15 year land contract. Absolutely. And so why don't you kind of give me a little background on that. When you talk about seller financing or owner financing, tell us what that means. And tell us how you guys started working this, and then we'll go into a little more depth on it. Well, it's really been sort of an interesting evolution because um, I've had quite a few rental properties for many, many years. Um, and a while back, my primary business was I'd buy houses, fix them up, and then turn around and sell them on a lease option. And then I would work with those people to get them financed. Mm -hmm. And with... Um, and that business really sort of completely blew up back in 2007. 
And so, and in addition to that, there are just an awful lot of people in the market that have been burned by lease options because a lot of people do lease options and the people just never really get the problems fixed that they need to get fixed to get financed. And so a lease option is only good for somebody that has a very temporary problem and is most likely going to get that fixed in a short period of time. And so what happened is I had all these um, houses that I'd essentially been running out, but I was really getting tired of sort of the rental game. And a lot of times when people um, rent houses, they don't treat them real well. They tend to be professional tenants. And so we sort of evolved into this now that we're selling a lot of the properties on a land contract. And so with these houses, we'll typically, um, you know, if it's not something that I already own, we'll typically buy them anywhere from five to twenty-five or thirty thousand um, dollars. A lot of times, we'll just sell them the way they sit. Occasionally, we might do some work to some of the mechanical systems um, that seem to be more problematic for people. But you know, I've sold houses that didn't have any plumbing or electric, and the people seem to be perfectly content with that. And able to get that done. You know, as much as plumbing and electric theft is common, most of the time plumbing is fairly easy to put back. But that's neither here nor there. So, so the land contract versus the lease option, uh, what are the real differences for, you know, help our, our listeners understand why you've picked one and what, what, the, what the rationale is? Well, when I talk to people, and I'm explaining what it is to a prospective tenant, I always say, you know, I, there are various forms of ownership of real estate. On the one extreme, and probably the best form of ownership for somebody is that you own a house free and clear, no mortgage, and the house is yours, and your only obligation then is your taxes. Mm -hmm. Then a step down from that would be to own the house with a mortgage. And so, yeah, you own the house, but if you don't make your payments, the bank's taking the house back. Right. And then a step down from that is a land contract. Now, with a land contract, I'd say it's not quite as good a form of ownership as a mortgage, but in a lot of ways, it's very, very similar. The big difference between a land contract and a mortgage is that with a land contract, the deed doesn't go into the buyer's name until they actually pay the house off. But from a buyer's perspective with a land contract, they get all the benefits of ownership. They, it's their house. They can do whatever they want to it. They can fix it. They can sell it. Um, they get the tax benefits, so they get to deduct the mortgage interest in property taxes. Um, and so it's for somebody who doesn't qualify for a conventional mortgage through a bank, it's probably the next best thing. And then a step down from that would be a lease option. And then a step down from that would be a lease. Now, as the perspective of somebody who's um, selling a house to somebody, um, you know, with a lease, typically in Ohio is going to take about a month or so to get somebody out who doesn't pay. Now, with a land contract, that's going to get stretched out uh, probably another 30 days. So it's going to take two months, um, assuming the person has 
um, less than 20% worth of paid in equity and has been in the house for less than five years. And then and on a mortgage, when somebody doesn't pay, it's probably to get a house back, you're probably looking at somewhere between six and 12 months and possibly longer. And two to $3,000 in foreclosure expenses. Right. Whereas with a land contract, once somebody becomes 30 days delinquent, you give them a 10-day notice and then simply it's a simple eviction. Now, I need to qualify that. That's in Ohio. That's that Different Ohio. states are going to have different rules. As you look at these things, you need to learn about your local region, your local state's uh, land contract laws or lease option laws. There may be cases where they're different as well. Uh, but Ohio is very, I'll say, landlord-friendly for uh, – for, for land contracts. We can, That's it's, correct. It's an I mean, and just as an example, I know Kentucky, essentially, with a land contract, there's no difference between a land contract and a mortgage in terms of so it's, somebody doesn't pay, so you have to foreclose. So foreclosure. Okay. Uh, well, I think we're coming up on a break. Before we do that, let me just give out a couple of phone numbers. If you are... Uh, oh, Julia, she here. Where'd they go? Uh, the numbers are one eight seven seven. Seven seven two nine six five eight to call outside the Cincinnati area or locally five one three seven seven two nine six five eight. If you have questions, please call. I'm not sure if we're set up today to get emails on uh, askvina.com, so uh, we invite you to call in your questions, and uh, we'll be back in a minute. Hi, and welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing with Jim Shapiro filling in for Vena Jones-Cox and my guest today, Bob Dressman. Uh, we're talking about uh, Bob's uh, program of uh, work for equity, I guess is one way to call it. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, buying, selling homes with needing work with seller financing. Uh, what sort of properties are you targeting for, you know, and areas and price range? How? What kind of, you know... What, what's your target market? It tends – well, I have sort of two target markets. One is I'm converting some of my rentals. And those were typically houses that would rent somewhere from between 600 and $1,200 a month. Um, and then the second is with properties that I'm acquiring um, to do this program with um, through both myself and um, the real estate fund that we have going and with those, we're typically purchase prices between five thousand up to twenty-five or thirty thousand, um, and then we'll turn around and resell those anywhere from probably fifteen thousand up to fifty or fifty-five thousand. We generally try and resell a property for between two and two and a half times what we pay for it. Okay. Um, now, are there some properties that are in such rough shape? You're saying no. This is too much to ask somebody to do, or is pretty much anything goes. How's how's that working for you? Well, the, the easiest properties to move are properties that are habitable, but that are not have not been updated. So, you know, a house where it has the plumbing and the electric, the kitchen and bathroom are there, but they're maybe fifty years old and ugly, and the place really needs cleaned and painted and some junk hauled out. Um, so, and what we'll typically do with those is we'll sell them on a land contract with a monthly payment somewhere between, oh, 150 and $200 less than the market rent would be for that property. Um, and, but, you know, I've sold houses that had no plumbing, no electric, 
big holes in the walls, kitchen and bathroom are missing. Uh, but that's really a function of the price and the monthly payment that you're going to charge. If you can afford to sell something for 150 or 200 bucks a month, you'll find somebody for it most likely. Uh, the one thing I try and stay away from are properties that have real heavy city orders on them, um, where the city's getting ready to tear the property down in a pretty short period of time. That's going to tend to also require city inspections and building permits and all kinds of extra somewhat onerous requirements on that buyer. So I can understand that. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is that it seems like when the city's dealing with an owner-occupant, they're a lot easier to get along with than they are if they're dealing with me. It's sort of you say you're an investor, then all of a sudden they think that you have all sorts of money and can do whatever they want. Whereas when they see that it's an owner-occupant that's working on their own house, they tend to cut them a lot, a lot more slack. Okay. Are there... You know, if there's something expensive like a furnace, air conditioner, is that – do you ever, ever have cases where you're either chipping in for that or chipping in and adding that to the purchase price? How have you – not everyone can come up with $4,000 to do a furnace and AC. Well, most of the times when I'm selling the low-end houses that need that type of stuff, my expectation are that the people are going to take care of that themselves. Okay. Uh, so in that type of case, and it's really interesting that the people who tend to buy these type of things just end up spending a whole lot less money than I ever would, um, doing this type of stuff. They tend to have friends in the business. Um, a lot of them work in construction trades and, uh, you know, like it might be an HVAC guy or their brother's an HVAC guy and somebody's replacing an 80% of efficient furnace that works perfectly fine with a new 95%. And so they end up getting that furnace for free and their brother-in-law helps them put it in and it seems to work real well. Now, if I have somebody that I've, and I've had these that I, back when they were doing the low income, te- um, or the first time home buyer tax credit, um, I had some tenants that I sold houses to um, on land contract. And with those type of people, if it's just beyond their ability to deal with, at times I would chip in and, you know, I, I want them to feel some of the pain and, to, you know, really be working with me, but I don't want to hang them out to dry either. I did about eight or nine of those first time home buyer tax credit sales. Mm-hmm. And I think two actually ended up buying. So that we, we found that was not selling to tenants, who are th- have a tenant mentality, I think the difference is you're really targeting someone who wants to be a homeowner mm-hmm. and is willing to put some effort in rather than a tenant who made it easy for them to become a homeowner, and yet they still had a tenant mentality. That's absolutely correct. I, 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 I still have quite a few people that I sold houses to on the first-time homebuyer tax credit, and it seemed like with them they either took hold or they didn't. Now, with this program, we tend to get low-down payments – because most of these people just don't have any money. Right. But I really don't want the house to be in too good a condition because I want them to have to do something so that they have some emotional investment in the property. Now, the other really interesting thing is when I'm selling a house on a land contract versus leasing it out, is just the quality of people I get is lots and lots and lots better than I would get just running, just trying to rent a house out. It seems like the whole there are a lot of people out there that you know either were homeowners at one point and really believe in home ownership, and they've had just issues that really st- stop them from doing that. And sort of with the current financing climate, 
they just can't if, unless you're perfect you're not getting a loan now but there are plenty of people that in my eyes compared to a lot of the tenants i normally deal with are just really really good people that have been on their jobs for long periods of time people that um have been in their current residence for a long period of time, people that really have the skills and are excited about this whole prospect. And so it's just sort of a breath of fresh air to sort of deal with a better quality of person. Sounds refreshing to me. I'm I'm a property manager and I'm not getting, you know, we're looking at the same thing. We're following some of your your footsteps there and I've got some of Venus properties I'm working with. Uh, And it's, you know, we're finding... A little bit of difference. Are, are the neighborhoods you're targeting? What what sort of neighborhoods? You know, is it in our city, uh, Evanston or Northside? Are there some areas that you're getting better, or is it really all over the board? It's really low income to blue collar to maybe slightly above blue collar type of neighborhoods. So, and this type of thing would work in higher priced neighborhoods. It's just the margins aren't there. You know, if we're looking to, you know, buy a house for 10 and resell it for 20 or 25, that works pretty well on a cash flow basis and ends up being a good deal for the people because they end up making a lower monthly payment than they would otherwise. Right. And they end up owning the house in 10 or 15 years, whereas they'd be renting for the rest of their life the numbers just don't work as well when you're dealing with a house that you're paying fifty seventy five for because there's sort of an interesting phenomena in the rental market that has existed for a long period of time is that a lower-priced range house rents for a much higher percentage of its value than a higher-priced house does. So if you have a house that you buy for ten grand, you can probably rent that for five ninety five a month. Whereas if you have a house that you buy for two hundred grand, you can probably only rent that for maybe twelve, thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars a month. Part of that is in Cincinnati. Once you get over nine ninety five, our market really changes. We're not anywhere near the one percent of value that I know other communities, other cities talk about. So you're right, a two hundred thousand dollar house here might rent for twelve hundred dollars. In other cities, a two hundred thousand dollar house people expect to rent for two thousand a month. Uh and I, my higher end houses that I rent, I manage, they're all down two, three hundred dollars, four hundred dollars a month rent over what they were getting five years ago. Yeah, I, I been, don't deal with many of those. So uh, most of the ones I have like that are sellers who wanted to sell, had to sell, couldn't sell, are no longer so, living in the house. Yeah, and they turned it into a rental, and, and they used to get eighteen ninety five, and now we're getting fourteen hundred. Uh, so. Let's talk about those buyers you're getting. How are you? How are you marketing for them? What's your What's well, your target there? Your well, techniques. I, I have a cloud-based property management software, and we'll um, upload pictures and video to that software program. It'll then replicate the house to like 50 different sites on the internet, and then probably. But the primary way that we really get people is we run an ad on Craigslist. Now, it's a little bit tricky because your real target market for this are people who think they want to rent a house. Because the people who are going to qualify for this program would never even think to look under houses for sale. And so, but the trick is with Craigslist terms of service, you can't say, well, why would you rent when you can buy this house? Because that'll get you kicked off. So what we'll typically do is say something in the ad like, 
well, we normally rent this house for seven ninety five, but we've reduced it to five ninety five to find somebody who's willing to take care of the work the house needs and handle um, the repairs as they come up. And from there, we then direct them to a. And the trick is when you do that in the rental market things are very price sensitive. And so if you have a house that would normally rent for $795 and you advertise it for $595, your phone is going to just blow up. Right. And so, you know, whereas you might get normally get five or 10 calls a day on that ad, you might very well get 100. And so you need to find some way to sort of pre-screen those people. So we'll do one of two things. One is we redirect them to our website where we have a more detailed explanation of the program. The second is that for the phone number, we actually send them to a voicemail box where we have probably a two to three minute description of our whole program that explains, hey, the house really needs work. We're selling it with owner financing and you can end up owning it in 10 years. Um, But the thing is, since you own it, you're going to have to handle the repairs. All right. Well, we're going to come back to that in a minute, but we're time for another another quick break here. Uh, if you again we're looking for callers, if you have any callers would like to come in and ask us some questions, please call us at outside the Cincinnati area one eight seven 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 two nine six five eight or locally five one three seven seven two nine six five eight. Good afternoon and welcome back to Real Life Real Estate. This is Jim Shapiro filling in for Vena Jones Cox here today with Bob Dressman. Before we get back to our topic, a couple, and I've got a caller, Justin. I'll be right with you to ask your hear your question. Uh, you know, Real Life Real Estate is sponsored by uh, Rhea of Greater Cincinnati. We've got a couple things going on uh, this Saturday. We've got an all-day workshop from nine to five on landlording. Landlording made easy with Jesse Brewer. He's a local property manager and investor. Uh, you can get more information about that at the CincinnatiRia.com website. Uh, look for the upcoming Saturday session. Next week on the 18th, we've got our uh, twice-monthly membership general membership meeting uh, from 6 to 9 o'clock Thursday at the Community Action Agency in Bond Hill. Uh, we've got two topics next week. Actually, we've got three different topics next week. Uh, the New Investor Focus Group is going to talk about creative financing. Uh, Vena Jones-Cox is going to do a little primer on... Uh, on the whole creative financing subject, kind of give people the basics of what it means, a little more of the things we've been talking about today. Uh, the Advanced Investor Group is going to have a session with uh, Bill Lynch talking about how I got real to God, true to God, business credit. Uh, he's how to set up a, a real business credit card. A lot of us, when we get credit, our names are on the bottom line. And a true business account means your business is on the bottom line of that contract, and they can't come over after your personal assets. So business credit. uh, And then uh, the 730 session is going to be a panel discussion on financing options in real estate today. There's going to be a panel of lenders from three or four different local financial institutions, uh, probably a a bigger one, a medium one, a smaller one, and some creative financing options, private financing. Whenever we have these sessions, they're always, especially with all the changes in the uh, financing market for for investors and for everybody, uh, having a chance to hear a, a variety of different financial institutions talk about what they can offer, 
to investors, what they can offer to our clients, to our buyers when we're not doing, we're trying to sell on a conventional basis where the buyer goes and gets a mortgage. So those are some uh, three excellent topics. That's next, not not tomorrow, but next Thursday from 6 to 9 at the Community Action Agency. Again, go to the Cincinnati REIA.com website for more information. Uh, Bob, I want to pick up where we were a couple minutes ago. Uh, when you're advertising to buyers, what are the most important things you're emphasizing? I Typically, uh, the buyers that we're looking for are real focused on monthly payment. And we also emphasize quite a bit that the and talk about that the work that the house does need because we don't want somebody to come in and not really understand what they're getting themselves into. And then the one thing that we find to be tremendously effective in terms of marketing is we take lots and lots and lots of pictures and put those up. And then we'll also shoot a YouTube video and put a link to that on it. Um, and it, people just are really excited about that because they can see what's going on in the house without having to actually schedule an appointment to come and see it. That probably saves you time showing houses to people that say, oh, this is more work than I can do. Absolutely. And, and, and yeah, and, you know, if somebody's turned off by having to do a little bit of work, they're not the people for us in this program. Right. Are you finding people that seem like they're excited about the idea, but when it comes down to it, how often, how often are you finding that? Or is this kind of self-screening when you start talking about owning a house and doing the work? Sometimes it's self-screening, but there are times that in our application process where somebody tells me they can do it, but I just don't think they have the resources to, and we're just not interested. And basically, people need to either have the skills, have somebody very close to them who has the skills, or have the financial resources to make stuff happen. Now, one of the interesting phenomena that we're finding is that you know, with our typical rentals, we look for people to make at least three times a monthly payment. With a lot of these houses that we're selling this way, we're finding people that make six, seven, eight, nine times the monthly payment. So they, somebody in that type of situation certainly has some excess financial capacity to be able to afford to buy the materials and to hire some of this work done and get some of their friends to help them and that type of thing. Yeah, that that's a great point. I was My next question is, I know you've been a landlord for a long time. I'm sure you have a standard criteria set you've used for screening tenants, uh, income, public records, credit, prior landlord references. Those are the most common that that I use. Absolutely. How have you revised those criteria for this program so that you're consistent from a you know, fair housing perspective? Uh, have you looked at that? Well, the, 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 I mean, the things that we look for in both tenancy and this program is that, you know, somebody needs to make at least three times a monthly payment. And probably with this payment program, it probably needs to be more than that just because they're going to have expenses going on. Um, and then the big difference is that we're screening people in terms of having the ability to do the work. Because that's – whereas with a normal tenant, you just would not look at that at all. Uh-huh. How are you doing that? What sort of screening? Um, we, we mostly just talk to people and say, you know, hey, look, do you know how to do this? This house doesn't have any plumbing, so how are you going to deal with that? If they say, well, I don't know. I'll figure something out. That's not a good answer. But if they say, well, 
you know, my brother Joe's a plumber and he can help me put it back together or I've put pipes together all along. That's not a big deal. And so it's talking to people to see okay. that they have the ability. So let me ask you to, you know, walk us through the process with a buyer once. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot about Justin. Let's uh, take a second here. Let's, uh, Justin, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Uh, Hello. Hi. My question was about the eviction foreclosure threshold, and um, if, if is there a, an ability to like re-up a land contract, and does that change that threshold, or is there any other strategy uh, to get around that? And my second question was about minimum down payment. Um, well, the down payment that we're looking for, we always get more than one month's payment because just psychologically, so many people are used to seeing one month's payment is a, the a deposit is the same as one month's payment we want to sort of psychologically break that so you know if we have a house that's 595 a month it will get oh somewhere between 795 and 1195 down uh and basically the better condition the house is in the more down payment we look for whereas the rougher it is the less down payment because we figure that people are going to be spending their money um to do the work on the house now, in terms of, I think a court is going to look very poorly on somebody who tries to dodge the system, so to speak, that once somebody reaches that either 20% paid in equity or five years in the house threshold. Um, so my advice is, now, the flip side of that is that if somebody's paid you on time every month for five years or, you know, that you had a house that you bought for 10 and sold them for 25 and they've paid 5000 worth of the principal down at that point having to foreclose although it's unpleasant is not the end of the world you're not really completely losing out now but whenever somebody's running into those sort of things the legal way of doing things is probably always the least effective in what you don't want to do the first step is to go knock on their door talk to them say look this just isn't working out you can't make your payments um, we don't want to have to sue you and ohio also has a law that if somebody doesn't make the payments on a land contract they not only have to make up the and they end up getting either foreclosed on or taken through eviction court depending on where it where in the process it is they're liable not only for the payments they didn't make but for the fair market rent less the payments they've made for the whole time so if they've been there for five years and fair market rents $200 a month more than they've been paying, you know, that's $12,000 that you can go after them for. And so that sort of gives you a stick to go after the people and say, look, you're better off just to move out and uh, rescind the land contract. You know, we'll give you a couple weeks, but why don't you find a different place to live? So, and you have them sign a release of land contracts so that it's all... Absolutely. Okay. So do you like the balloon payments then? Get out. I, I really dislike balloon payments because okay. I've done so many land contracts over the years and most of the people that I'm dealing with are just never going to get financed in the current climate. And so I think it's unfair of me to ask them to do something I know they're not going to be able to do. And so they tend to be really excited about the fact that, hey, look, yeah, you can get financed, and I'm charging you 8%, and if you do get refinanced, your rate will probably go down to 4 But worst case is all you have to do is pay me this payment for, 
you know, anywhere between five, 10, 15 years and you own the house. And, and the alternative is go to a bank, put down 10 to 20 percent and have perfect credit and have perfect credit, which and then make payments don't. for 30 years. Right. That'll probably be at a higher, well, lower interest rate might make the payment, but it. But but for these people, what they're not comparing it to what a mortgage payment would be. They're comparing it to what they'd be what paying a, in rent. What a rent payment would be. Right. And so here you're less than rent, and they're they're getting equity. Do, do any of them think in terms of G in five or six years I can sell the house for more than I owe on it, or are they not even That's going there? That's way beyond where now some of the. Sort of my average buyer. That's not true now. I'm always surprised at the quality of people I get, and you know there are times that I get people that, you know, have owned houses and are in the process of getting a divorce, or their credit's just dead, so they're not going to qualify for a mortgage at this point in time. And those type of people think that way, but the vast majority of people are just thinking, I'm going to pay this thing off and be good then. Let me add a comment, Justin. When I've done some land contracts that were we're going to be balloons. We typically started with a three-year land contract, and, and the ones for the first-time homebuyer tax credit, that was the, the minimum requirement. So that left opportunity to add a year, extend that contract for a year. We're doing a few of them now for people that are really you know working to get a loan, uh, and we still then have another year we could even add another six months at the end and be at four and a half years and then start the eviction, uh, not give them another extension so that they never hit the five-year point. Now, Bob's talking about buying some of these cases, you know, if you're selling for 25000 hitting that 20% point is happening a lot earlier than if you're selling for 80000 takes a lot longer to build up $20,000 in equity than it does to build up you know, five or six. So yeah, but the flip side is that you've paid a lot less for that house. Oh, absolutely. I'm just saying from yeah, a so. from a refi perspective and from a the, the the term. But I like your I like your comment that you know a lot of these buyers will not be able to qualify for a loan, and you're not setting them up to fail. You're giving them a long term option for less than rent to own their home, build up equity, not have to deal with a bank. All they have to do is take care of it. Yeah, right? and, and the the people are just really excited that somebody's given them a sh uh, fair shake when nobody would give them a chance before. Right. And well, great. Well, thank you, Justin. Thank you. Uh, I think we've got time for another break here, and then we'll be back. I've, I'm going to ask Bob to walk me through a caller, and, and we'll we'll see how that all works. But quick break before we go. Hi, and welcome back once again to Real Life Real Estate. Uh, we've got time for a couple more callers. If anyone has questions, our phone number is one 772 or in the local area, 513-772-9658. So, Bob, let's walk through. Someone calls up and says, hey, I'm interested in this kind of a transaction. I'm interested in a house where I can buy it. How does that work? What's the tell me how you know the call, the pre qualification, and then you know the the whole deal process, the closing? Um, well, the first step is when I'm talking to somebody, I want to make sure that they understand that they're what we're looking at is them buying a house, not running a house, because there are a lot of people that just and so that's step number one. 
Then step number two is we have them go take a look at the property, make it some, making sure it's something that they're interested in. Um, and a lot of times people even bring their aunt, their uncle, their mom, their dad, you know, their cousin to look at it to make sure that the work is something they can handle. Then once they're pretty sure that it's something they're interested in, um, we have them go to our website um, and fill out an application there. Uh, when we get that application and have collected an application fee, we typically charge $35. Um, we look at both, we look at the amount of income relative to the monthly payment. Um, we're looking at their ability to do the work. We look at the stability of their income. So is it somebody who's, you know, got a job uh, working at a fast food restaurant the day before yesterday? Or is it somebody that's been on the job for five or six years or has some sort of trade um, where you're pretty sure they're going to be employed for a pretty long period of time? And then we're going to look at their residential history because if it's somebody that moves every three months, this probably isn't the program for them because they need to have a long enough attention span to be able to not only get into the house and get it fixed up, but we want to, it's sort of a long-term plan. So we want people who have a long-term mindset. Then um, once we get their application approved, uh, the next uh, – now, the, interestingly, we'll look them up on the clerk of court's website. We're looking for evictions. Um, sometimes we'll run them through a national database for both criminal and evictions. We really don't look much at their credit just because the vast majority of the people we're dealing with are going to have credit scores you know, in the high 400s to maybe 550. Occasionally, we might get somebody with 560, 570, up to 600, but it, we just typically don't pull the credit because that's not what we're looking for. Um, the next step is that we'll get a hold deposit from the people to hold it. Um, then once we have that, we'll schedule a closing with them. Now, it is a real closing because you know a land contract is a real binding document. So we'll have our lawyer prepare the land contract. Um, we do a HUD-1 settlement statement. Then we also do a disclosure um, that says, look, you're buying this house. If it breaks, you have to fix it. Um, we typically escrow for the taxes and in the, the insurance. So it, it explains that if the taxes go up, their payment can go up. Um, it explains that we get just a basic insurance policy, but it's really to their benefit to get a better homeowner's policy. Um, then we sign the paperwork and they get to fixing the house up. You record the land contracts? Absolutely. That's required in Ohio. Yes. How does that protect does, that protects the buyer? Does that also offer value to you? Well, in terms of uh, I've had cases with when the city starts fussing about something that's wrong with a house. You know that if it's an unrecorded land contract, they're coming after me. Whereas if it's recorded frequently, they'll go after the buyer to get okay. them to do it. Uh, if it's not recorded, it's really not legal. Yeah, well, another thing, too, in terms of them being able to refinance it, which is certainly a benefit to me, a recorded land contract adds more credence to what's really going on. Well, I think we're almost wrapped up here. Uh, Bob, this has been really uh, great input. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been fun having you on the show again. Uh, and for now, uh, everyone else, uh, 
good success with your investing and look forward to joining you again next week when Rena's back for Real Life Real Estate.